0: to Welcome you out to another episode of the Lodestone Training and Consulting Podcast. I'm Jared Ross, and joining me today is my good friend Joshua Prince. Joshua Prince. Thank you for being here, Josh. Oh thanks for having me, Jared. I I've been looking forward to this. For those of you who, who don't know who Joshua Prince is, well, he's gonna tell you in just a second. But he's been a friend of mine for a number of years, and I have to say he's he's one of the best there is. I've really been looking forward to this because I want you to get to know him. And uh yeah, I guess that's that's where I want to start. So,
1: Josh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, it's kind of hard with an introduction like that. my head, I'm not, I'm not even sure I fit through the door anymore now. Uh, and i got to say, this studio is awesome. These gold mics. I mean, first time in a studio with gold mics. <laughs> uh, hey, wow. But uh, We're pulling out all the stops just uh, for you. Apparently so. Uh, so, anyway, a little bit about myself. I'm actually a fourth-generation attorney. So, my great-grandfather was an attorney, and I tell everyone that it's truly in the blood. I... Uh, love being a lawyer. I honestly could not see myself doing something else other than this. I knew in high school that I wanted to be a lawyer. And there's actually a, a funny story story, excuse me, when I was in uh, high school, I went to an all-boys school. Or at least at that point in time it was an all-boys private school. It did end up going co-ed in 2000, but it was The Hill School in Pottstown. and okay. It was Uh, much more like a college atmosphere. So they had a grill and they had an arcade, pool tables, all sorts of stuff like that. So uh, I had a a good friend there who uh, I actually had boarded with because you have to board there one year even if you're local. And he ends up getting caught gambling at pool. <laughs> Which we all did. <laughs> Let's just be honest. To be
0: honest, yeah, to be clear.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I
0: mean, he's the one who got caught. Yeah, yeah, he's
1: the one who got caught. And we're past the statute of limitations for my prosecution. <laughs> so, uh, But uh, no, he gets caught. And he comes to me. And, and what the Hill School had was this unusual process whereby if you get brought up before what they called the disciplinary committee you could only be represented by another fellow student. You could not actually have a lawyer represent you, regardless of what the offense was. Okay. And so he came to me and said, Josh, I I need you, I I need you to defend me. I said, well, what exactly do you want me to do? You got caught gambling at pool. Like, (laughs) there's no dispute. You don't have a twin brother or something. What exactly do you expect me to argue? And he says, well, I don't know, but my parents will kill me if I get expelled. and you're good at this stuff, and I said I, I really don't know what I'm going to argue for you. So I was uh, sitting down in the grill, trying to figure out what I'm going to argue when you know he got caught by the uh, the teachers gambling at pool right there, and uh, it came to me. So we go into the disciplinary board hearing, and they turn to me and say, "Mr. Prince, do you want to make an opening statement in relation to your client?" And I said, "I do." I said. I know we're here today because my friend Naftalin's being alleged to have violated school policies in regards to gambling, but there's actually a larger issue the school needs to be aware of, and that's the fact that it not only condones, but it actively supports gambling by students in the school, and all, it's just silence, (laughs) And, and the board chairman looks at me and says, Mr. Prince, what are you talking about, and I said, well, I said, in the, grill you have these arcade systems set up where people put quarters and other coins into them betting that they can beat the machine as they are successful it basically prints out tickets that are redeemable at the grill for food and other prizes I said beyond that if you're really good and you can beat the high score you get to put your name in the machine, and that's a sense of immortality that no one can buy. <laughs> <laughs> the board members start looking at each other like, What, what is this? What, what is going on here? And uh, so uh, I, I did end up getting Naftalin off. Uh, they actually <laughs> look at me and say, Mr. Prince, get your client out of here. Tell him never to gamble again. It's clear that as a board, we have a lot more important issues we need to be discussing right now. <laughs> Well, oh, that's awesome. So that was one of my, my intros into it. I, I did end up representing some other uh, students who got in trouble while at the Hill. And Well, I'm sure after that experience, you were in demand. Yeah. Well, and when the school went co-ed, unfortunately, as I'm sure you can only surmise, uh, uh-huh. uh, we had the first instance of individuals having sex in the dorms, <laughs> uh, and uh, what really irked me about it is my client, the the guy in the situation was in the male dorm, and because it was the first year that coeds were allowed there, uh-huh. they were not seeking to violate her or bring any you know, charges or allegations against her, even though she not only was part of the consensual relationship, but also in the boys' dormitory. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, that that did end up getting resolved in my client's favor again, but uh, yeah, so so I have a little bit of a background even before being able to be a lawyer, being involved in it, but like I said, I, I really did grow up in a family where the law was everything, and, it, and I don't want people to take that the wrong way. My parents, I, I am truly blessed. They would have been happy for me to do whatever I loved, and there was never a time where they at all tried to push me into the law. I think my father might have suggested it probably would have been better not to go into the law, like some other profession, because (laughs) you know it's just one of those uh, professions that uh, it takes a toll on you and people don't realize that. And again, it, it depends on the type of person you are. I think, Jared, you and I were talking about it earlier. There's two different types of lawyers. There's those where their clients are just a number and when they clock out for the day, You know, it's just another number, not worried about what the situation is. And then there's other lawyers like myself, where every single client is a person, and you litigate every single case no different than you'd litigate it for yourself. Yeah. And if you lose, that's like you lost your own case. Um, And maybe that's why I've been so fortunate and successful uh, in my career, because it's as if I am litigating every single case for myself. Yeah, I can... I can relate to that, uh,
0: to some extent as, as a green beret. Um, I have been very successful when I've, I've deployed and to the point where like some of our partner forces, they've acknowledged me or they've awarded me or they've, you know, set me apart from, from the rest of the guys on my team. And the reason for that is I might be doing just as good a job as another guy on my team, but my talent, my ability is I actually care. And when I care, uh, even if i can't speak the language the people i'm working with they can feel that hey this guy actually legitimately cares and, and they and once they feel that the bond that we have um then i was able to ask them to do more things than, than they otherwise would would do and so i i, I can understand it's one of the, your personality traits that i've really uh that i admire because i know that that that's how you are and uh i want to back up just a second i I think I've only met your mother once, maybe twice, and that was pretty brief. But I have met your father a, a couple of times, and he's a good man. He, um, I don't know if we want to get into it, but uh, we were at a, a convention where he caused a little bit of trouble. And he became one of my biggest heroes at that convention for what he did. Maybe we can talk about that yeah, a little bit could, later on. Yeah, we can talk about yeah. the NRA convention. Yeah,
1: that was, whew, he's a good man. So, yeah, you're, you come from some good stock. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. And, But like I said, you know, it, it was truly my own choice to go into the legal profession. And quite honestly, if I could have gone right from high school into law school, I would have done it. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't available. It wasn't an option. So I ended up going to college up in Montreal. Uh, I went to McGill University. I decided I wanted a little bit of a different flavor. I wanted to um, major in political science, and I thought, what better than to go outside the United States to get a little bit of a different view? Mm -hmm. Uh, My parents had been going up to vacation to Montreal ever since their honeymoon. So, growing up, we had vacations up there, and I really liked it. I actually loved the cold. Now, up there, It it brings a whole new meaning to cold. So negative 40 on your your eyes, basically between blinks, you feel little ice crystals and you know you're alive. Um, So the winters are brutal. uh, But the best way is I always explain to people what Montreal is. It's like New York City without the mean people, without the crime, but being the car theft capital of the world. I mean, <laughs> My dad literally had just bought a, a brand new uh, truck and gone up there and didn't have it more than four days before it was stolen. Yeah. And up there, it seems like the police aren't really that concerned with actually trying to find stuff because back then they had built in car phones. And so we called it and it had a French auto attendant, meaning it was still somewhere in the city. It was active so they could triangulate it. We called the police and they're like, uh, nah. Yeah, like, uh, no, we're not that All right, then. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so I spent four years up there, and I ended up double majoring in political science and world religions. A lot of times when you tell people that, they're like, "What world religion? Like, what's that?" Most of our political issues do stem from religious differences mm-hmm. or misunderstandings, and that. And it's interesting to see how the world religions and political science really tie together very well, and and give a better explanation and understanding as to the issues we see across the world. So I, I found it really, really interesting. And that's why I ended up double majoring in it and then uh, came back to the, the States uh, and uh, ended up going to law school and, you know, then started practicing law and been just enjoying it. I'll, I'll never forget when I was in law school, I told my dad I wanted to do firearms law, and he's like, what is that? Like, yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, sure, you can do whatever you want, but you just know when you graduate, you're going to be doing, you know, workers' compensation, disability law, social security disability law, some family law, some minor criminal law, you know, everything under the sun. And if you want to do this firearms law thing, whatever you're talking about, yeah, you can go ahead and, and try that out. Um, so uh, it, was, it was really interesting because when I was in law school, I was fortunate in a couple different regards. One, uh, while I was in law school, I actually got to intern with Stephen Hallbrook, who's an attorney in Virginia. He actually wrote the amicus brief for the U.S. Congress in DC v. Heller. Okay. And I actually got to go see DC v. Heller read by Justice Scalia with Stephen Hallbrook. So for some of those individuals listening who don't know, what, tell us briefly okay. what that, sure. so, uh, the case was. So Heller involved Mr. Heller, who was a resident in the District of Columbia. He was basically precluded from uh, having a firearm that uh, was functional for immediate use. And he brought a challenge because the District of Columbia had this uh, provision. I believe it was enacted somewhere in the late 60s, early 70s, that basically prevented someone from having a firearm in a functional status, mm-hmm. a handgun. And so he challenged it. And that ended up being one of the first real cases that the U.S. Supreme Court decided to, to hear in relation to whether the Second Amendment was an individual right. Now, a lot of people say it's the first case the U.S. Supreme Court ever heard about the Second Amendment. That's not true. There's plenty of prior cases. Uh, but this was the first time that the court decided to hear whether this was an individual right or a yes. collective right. And what's really interesting, if you look at history... There never was any dispute that it was an individual right until somewhere around the mid-70s, early 80s. That's when all of a sudden this idea that, well, maybe it's just a collective right, uh, started getting espoused by professors and others who wanted to kind of limit uh, its application. So um, anyway, I got to hear that decision where the U.S. Supreme Court came down with its decision stating that, no, it is an individual right, uh, the right to keep and bear arms. And so uh, I got to hear that with uh, uh, Steve, and then um, the other thing that happened while I was in law school, and again, some of these things, it's just like how everything comes together. It it still kind of amazes me, and even to this day in my life, some things are right this second coming together from you know six eight years ago, and I'm like, how all these things all of a sudden converge at one point and are shaping a future is just really interesting to me, but. Nevertheless, uh, had an elder law professor uh, in law school. He was an adjunct professor. So he was generally a lawyer during day. And he taught one class at the school that was the elder law class. Now, uh, his name was Neil Hendershot. And he still practices. Uh, he has one of the top, or at least had, I haven't followed up with it, uh, top blogs in relation to elder law in the United States. So attorneys from all over the United States would turn to his blog on elder law matters. Mm-hmm. And- So as part of the grade, he said we could write a blog article, and it would be 5% of our grade. So after school, I went up to him, and I said, you know, I got this interesting idea. He says, what's that? I said, I want to write about Grandpa's machine gun in the trunk. He goes, what? (laughs) I I said, yeah. I said, as our veterans are dying off, their estates are finding these types of firearms, and they have no idea what they are what to do with them or anything. He's like, yeah, I don't know about that. And I'm like, I really think this is an issue— that estate practitioners need to know about. He says, I'll tell you what, you go ahead, write the article, we'll review it and we'll go from there. So I write the article and I bring it to him. And he reads it and he looks at me and he goes, I was an estate practitioner for 30 years now and I've never known to measure the length of a barrel on a firearm before. Or to see if the firearm shoots more than one round with a single pull of the trigger. He says, this, this is amazing. So he posts it on his blog and it goes viral across the U.S., all these attorneys are writing in saying, this information isn't out there, we've never known as the state practitioners Uh who'll be looking for this. So uh end up I think I end up writing two or three more blog articles <laughs> for him about different Did each count as you know another five percent. I don't degrees? know how I worked that, you know, <laughs> honesty. I gotta go back. Yeah. I think I need, you know, an A plus in that class. But uh <laughs> But uh yeah, so it just went really well and we did, you know, I think two or three parts to Grandpop's Machine Gun in the Trunk where we went over all the different National Firearms Act type weapons, so short barreled rifles, short barrel shotguns, machine guns, silencers any other weapons, destructive devices, all the fun toys, as I call them. And uh, then we had local bar associations contacting him and me, wanting us to go and start teaching lawyers while I'm still in law school about the firearms (laughs) laws. So we're like doing this circuit, we're going around the Cumberland County, Dauphin County, you know, all the different local Berks County uh, bar associations uh, where I would present. And of course, Neil would go with me because again, I'm still not a lawyer. Uh, and uh, it, it was a lot of fun. And then by the time I graduated law school, the Pennsylvania Bar Institute and other uh, that are other organizations that are responsible for what we call continuing legal education seminars started reaching out to me and wanting me to come present on firearms law matters and all of that. So like I said, I start practicing with my dad, and I'm doing family law, I'm doing some criminal law, I'm doing workers' comp, social security disability, and probably within the first year or so, I end up getting busy enough doing the firearms law that I cut back to just doing the uh, workers' comp and social security disability law and firearms law. Because the, the workers' comp and social security were backbones of the firm at that point. They were our largest producers. My dad's firm. And what firm is that? That's Prince Law, okay. this is PC. Yeah. And so, then at that point, Um, I continued doing things and quite honestly, I'm now like a half year more, so a year and a half in or so. About what year is this, if you don't mind? Uh, So this would be uh, about 2010 and a half, somewhere in there. Okay. Um, I'm so busy, just doing firearms law stuff that I don't have time for the other stuff. So this, you know, area, go ahead, you know, yeah, you want to do this firearms law thing, whatever that uh-huh. is. Go, you, you go crazy have fun. kid. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now uh, it's the second larger at that point in time. It was the second largest producer for the firm, and I am so busy that I, I don't have time to handle other things. So uh, it just progressed from there and. Uh, resulted in me doing something I said I would never do and that was take another bar exam. I I, I was only about I guess now six years ago that I went and took another bar exam something I swore I'd never do and that was the Maryland bar exam so that I could get licensed in Maryland. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. So I am licensed in Pennsylvania and Maryland and federally I handle issues across the United States and also do some international import export of firearms but uh, it, it's just amazing how everything's come together and it's just just you know, when you you look back at it, and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe how far I came. And like when you're in the moment, it's like just keep pushing forward. That's right. And, yeah, you just keep trudging along, and you don't even know how you got there, but but you yeah. did. Yeah, <clears throat> a, a lot of fortune and in, in everything of of that nature. And uh, as I alluded to earlier, you know, I I do believe it has a lot to do with me loving what I do, and I I really do love the practice of law. I I love constitutional issues. I do handle uh, other things beyond just simply the Second Amendment that piqued my interest. I have some issues of first impression, which means the courts had never addressed them before on constitutional grounds here in Pennsylvania and that, that uh, I litigated successfully. uh, And uh, I'm proud of those things. Um, Even though they're not your Second Amendment related issues, things that are of importance, First Amendment issues, due process issues, uh, all of that, you know, our, our rights I do believe are what Pennsylvania's Constitution, in Article One, Section Twenty-Five, declares to be inviolate. Uh, it's stronger than what I would say many of us would have historically said in relation to our U.S. constitutional rights being inalienable, inviolate. Uh, in Article One, Section Twenty-Five, it actually states that all of the rights and powers. Uh, enumerated in Article One are exempted out of the power of the General Assembly and the Congress, that it is solely a power of the people and that no one can divest you of that power. Uh, so that's why I think it's so strong. I love the Pennsylvania Constitution in that regard. Um, and like I said, I've had opportunity to handle some constitutional issues other than just simply second amendment or here under the pennsylvania constitution article one section 21
0: yeah i'm most familiar with with section 21 and its wording too is much stronger than than the second amendment where it says shall not be questioned questioned. so when that legislator or that that individual is even bringing that question up i i think this might be a good idea i think we should should even have the conversation about some kind of gun control. They're violating the Constitution by questioning the ability for the citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves and the Commonwealth. And,
1: and I agree with that. The, the problem we run into is the situation where we find ourselves currently, in, and that is a political judiciary, uh, a judiciary that no longer respects its bounds, believes that it is beyond the Constitution, Mm -hmm. uh, that there are no limitations. What they first start doing, and what we see in relation to whether we call it Article One, Section 21, or the Second Amendment, is they start saying, well, we're only interpreting what is within the Second Amendment. And so these things, whatever they may be, if we're going to say machine guns or whatever, they're not part of the Second Amendment. They're outside the scope. So yes, you have this you know, inalienable constitutional right, but it only applies to handguns or muskets or whatever your your flavor of the week is. Um, And and so they start interpreting it instead of recognizing the fact that that was never the intent of our founding fathers. And I, I love, I absolutely love everyone who says that our founding fathers' intent was for our constitution whether it be at the state or federal level to be a living breathing document because there's only one question you have to pose to them that they will not be able to answer if that was truly our founding fathers intent that the constitution would simply live breathe evolve why did they include an amendment process it would be wholly unnecessary right it would just simply evolve. Yes, It would live, breathe, evolve. We wouldn't need the amendment process. Yet we included that for a very specific reason. If there came a time, at least in relation to some of the provisions enumerated in the Constitution, I'll come back to that in a second, but if there came a time where we believed that some of them were no longer right or appropriate, we could change them. And The best example of that I can give you is starting with the 18th Amendment when we as a society decided alcohol should be banned across the United States, and that was right for us, we went through the amendment process. We instituted an amendment. Yep. And when we, the people, then decided, you know what, I think we made a mistake there, we then went through the amendment process in the 21st Amendment to repeal it. Now, what I find to be so interesting about that is the fact that not that long ago, we're talking Prohibition era, back in the 30s, We as a people understood that if we wanted to ban something not specified in the Constitution, we needed to go through an amendment process to ban it across the United States. Yes. And then when we decided that wasn't right for us, again, we had to go back through an amendment process. What's the deal with all the laws we have on the books banning stuff that aren't even – meant or some of the things are mentioned in the Constitution yeah, exactly. uh, without any type yeah, of amendment? Th- that goes along with
0: the idea and the understanding. And I talked about this uh, – when this podcast airs, it would have been a couple of weeks ago. I talked about, um, very caveman terms, the difference between a democracy and a republic and how – I mean – Majority rule, you can vote yourself into whatever the heck you want to do. But a republic with those individual rights being guaranteed and secured, you can't do that. And we have been lied to, misled, and so many people don't understand the difference between those two. So they can allow, you know, we didn't allow it during Prohibition for the 18th Amendment. We didn't allow it then. But now people are so asleep and so uneducated that they will allow people just to to vote on whatever and
1: pass whatever law. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'll actually, you know— take it a little bit of a step further please with regards to amending the Constitution my own personal belief is that we cannot amend the first 10 amendments Uh, those are inalienable inviolate rights that no person has a right to take away from you uh, those are instilled in us by our creator of whatever form that is for you. Exactly. That's my personal belief. It may not be your belief. I understand well, that. I appreciate that. But a couple times on the podcast, we have gotten into, you know, what that
0: means. And also another term, natural rights. So if you don't choose to believe in.
1: That a god or whatever gave you those rights. Well, there's their the natural inherent. rights. Yeah, those inherent rights, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so while I would be accepting that someone might be able to, um, as well as they're competent and understand what they're doing, voluntarily give up their uh, inherent natural rights, mm-hmm. uh, I don't believe that any person can do that for another. No. And so. Uh, That's why I have a a little bit of that, uh, you know, addition, let me say, to my analysis on the amendment process, because I acknowledge that the amendments are there. But I do think there's even a limit to the amendment process in that regard, because I don't believe those uh, inviolate rights can ever be amended by others. Yeah. Um, But getting back to what I was talking about just a minute ago with regards to the courts and the lack of respect for the Constitution, as I had started, I said, you know, they started by, in essence, reinterpreting what something meant. And they said, okay, you know. But now we've gone way beyond that. And the best example I can give to all the listeners in how horrifying this is was the recent, n- not real recent, but recent enough action by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in relation to the redistricting map. So about two and a half years ago, Uh, A challenge went up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court regarding the constitutionality of our district maps for election purposes. So what happens then? Uh, The court hears the case, and there is no dispute by me that the court has the power to rule the map unconstitutional. The court does that, but now it's the next step the court takes. The next step the court takes is they draft their own map. And the power Uh Uh to draft and implement a map under the Pennsylvania Constitution is explicitly with the General Assembly. It explicitly says only the General Assembly shall draft and and basically implement the districting map. But now we have the Pennsylvania Supreme Court going and doing itself. Now, what should have happened is if they did believe the map was unconstitutional, they ruled unconstitutional, it would revert back to the prior map. And then if someone can successfully challenge that prior map, we keep going back in time to the prior maps until one is constitutional. There is absolutely no power for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, to simply go and and take those steps. And I understand from someone who was uh, in a Senate committee hearing when uh, Justice Baer was there, who's now our chief justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, uh, like him or not, he was asked—he's a very blunt man, so that's why I say like him or um, not—he was asked, well, where did the Pennsylvania Supreme Court get this power to be able to draft and implement its own map? His response, very blunt, very specific and simple. We took it. (sighs) So, you know, I, I sit here and I, I just, I I think about the oaths I've taken as an attorney and through law school mm-hmm. and things of that nature, and think about our constitutional rights and how our entire republic was eroded in just that one decision. Yeah. Because now, at the end of the day, what's, now it's a free-for-all, right? It's whoever's strongest. And yeah, let me remind the courts, you don't have your own real police force, you know. So so when the General Assembly says, you know what, we have our own National Guard and our say is going to reign supreme, Uh what happens to everyone else? You know, and and that's why there needs to be this respect for our republic and our three co-equal branches of government and each needs to stay in their lane. Yeah, absolutely. And- when they don't stay in their lane, then what, what's the result? Well, we, we lose everything. Exactly. The, the republic is lost. And, and you have the situation that we find today with people being disenchanted with the elections, not believing there's actual election integrity. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of unknowns still in relation to the past presidential election. I I can say there definitely was fraud. I've seen it, I know in Bucks County, they're prosecuting people for fraud. Was there fraud at the levels that the Trump campaign suggested? I can honestly say I have not yet seen evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Also doesn't mean that it did occur. Yes. All I'm saying is, as of right now, actual support I haven't seen. But yet there's still no doubt that in every single election we have, there is election fraud that occurs. In fact, I remember during the uh, presidential, the last one, looking at the fact that uh, on the voter registration pages in Pennsylvania, they list people who requested ballots. Someone had found that there was a lady who's 136 years old, allegedly, in Philadelphia that not only requested a ballot, but returned a ballot. <laughs> I mean, and and you just sit there and, and shake your head, and uh-huh. you're like, well, no wonder no one has faith in the system. I mean, and, and then- Well, didn't the-
0: Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't the- Pennsylvania Supreme Court, didn't they do something similar with uh, allowing the uh, absentee ballots in Correct. where they didn't have the authority? The legislature has the authority to do that, but the Pennsylvania Supreme Court on their own,
1: same thing. Yep, we're going to do that. We're going to authorize that. Exactly right. That, that's exactly right. And in fact, uh, recently, he just uh, became—well, will in January become Justice Robson? He just ran a, a successful campaign to move up from the Commonwealth Court. He's the president judge there uh, to become a justice on the PA Supreme Court. But uh, about a year ago, he heard an election law challenge to 2,300 ballots not being time-stamped at all. And the law is explicit. They must be stamped. Yeah. He threw all 2,300-plus out. What does the liberal Pennsylvania Supreme Court do? They go and reinstate all of them, uh, even though the, the law is explicit that they're not to be counted. And, and that's the problem. You, you lose all faith now, yeah. not just in one branch of government, but all three, because it really doesn't matter. If the judiciary is just going to go and do whatever it wants, and, and let me take a step back and say, this is no one but our own fault. We all have been asleep at the wheel and allowed this to happen. Um, in I think it was, two, it was either 2015 or 16, we had three judicial vacancies on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. People couldn't be bothered to go out and vote. As a result, all three liberals were installed on the court. We now have a five to two makeup on the court, five liberals, two conservatives. And as the listeners just heard... Uh, Judge Brobson was successful in getting a position there, uh, yeah. and we didn't gain any ground there. In fact, we were looking at the possibility of losing ground because uh, Chief, well, former Chief Justice Saylor, uh, who was a Republican, had maxed out. Under Pennsylvania law, we were in the Constitution, I should say, we require our judges to uh, retire at 75. So he had reached the maximum age. He went and uh, retired. So it was his open spot that was being vied for. Gotcha. Um, so we've just maintained that five to two um, difference. But yeah, right before the election, we we did throw a plug up for him on here to
0: encourage everyone to go out and vote.
1: I, I mean, I, I am in awe. He is a, a strict constructionist. He is a very, very intelligent man, uh, very conservative. Um, we've seen a number of really great decisions from him. Uh, just real quickly, I'll touch on two. One has direct application to me. Uh, That was a case, firearm owners against crime at all versus city of Harrisburg. So the city of Harrisburg has a number of unlawful, illegal firearm ordinances. Under Pennsylvania law, we preempt any local municipality from Mm -hmm. regulating, among other things, firearms and ammunition. And uh, the city of Harrisburg has done so anyway. And so we had filed suit against that uh, in Dauphin County. Uh, Judge Dowling found somehow some way we did not have standing to be able to challenge the ordinances. We had to wait till we get prosecuted before we should be able to (laughs) challenge these. Um, And then we took an appeal up and it went up to the Commonwealth Court. Judge Brobson actually wrote what we call an en banc decision. So the the case was being decided by the entire Commonwealth Court, which is the strongest type of decision you can get Mm -hmm. out of a court here in the Commonwealth. And uh, Judge Brobson, writing for the entire court, said, no, this is wrong. You cannot force someone to either have to say they violated the law or that wait until they're being prosecuted for a violation of the law to be able to challenge whether a law is (laughs) lawful and constitutional or not. Uh, And he actually reversed some prior case law from the Commonwealth Court in that regard, saying this was heinous when it was decided. It was wrong. It should have never been this way. Uh, And then we got (laughs) the city of uh, Harrisburg appeals up to the PA Supreme Court and the PA Supreme Court agrees to hear this case. Uh, And just a couple weeks ago, we actually got the decision from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and they did affirm Judge Brobson. Uh, They said he got it right. We did have standing. Now, the concerning thing for me, remember, there's seven justices on Uh this court. It was a four to three decision three of the justices on the PA Supreme Court would have held that you need to wait until you're being prosecuted, or at a minimum, you have to state in the complaint when you're challenging it, that you're currently in violation of the, of the ordinance or law so that they can prosecute you yeah, based on yeah. your own statements uh, to be able to challenge one. Now, just think about how horrifying that is. Like our founding fathers have to be rolling over in their graves. To think that they've created a system where not only can the people not even tell definitively whether a law is lawful or not, and whether they can be subjected to it or not, but they have to wait to be able to challenge it to ask the courts until such time as they're being prosecuted for. I mean, it's just—it's mind-blowing. I I, I don't know how we went so far astray so quickly, but— nevertheless here we are um so anyway that that was the the one decision that just recently came down and uh the other one was uh more recently there was a challenge this was uh, a case i was not actually involved in at the appellate level at least uh, and involved a gun club uh, that was private in nature And the question came about whether a local ordinance from a municipality could regulate this private range. Uh, And Judge Brobson, again, uh, ended up striking down the ordinance on Second Amendment grounds. Now, interestingly, there's a lot of backstory there, but there never was an actual challenge to the ordinance based on preemption. Uh, It wasn't actually litigated. I don't know why, because I would have rather seen it on that grounds, but nevertheless, it was litigated on the uh, Second Amendment grounds, Mm -hmm. and he found that, no, the ordinance uh, was not sufficiently tailored uh, to justify that type of encroachment on that right. So uh, again, and those are just two quick firearms-related examples. I have lots of cases that Judge Brobson has has issued in, uh, I'll say, in our favor. Uh, (laughs) He's a great man. I can only think of one case where uh, I disagree with him a little bit. He gave me some wins in it, but not at the, the overall issue. And maybe someday I'll get to pick his brain about exactly why he ruled the way he did. Uh, but other than that, um, the one thing I, I always respect with Judge Brobson is you may not agree with him uh, with regards to a particular decision, but he'll always give you a well-written and well-explained decision. He's not one of those judges who will just simply go out and say, well, because I said so. Yeah, You know, he'll support it based on what all information is before him, the record, historical evidence, yada, yada. Uh, so I have great respect for that because I, I acknowledge at the end of the day, we're not always going to agree on everything. Uh, but if you can at least show me that it's not just you saying, well, because I'm judge and I say so, I, I got to give, you know, yeah. mad props for that. <laughs> So we went down a nice, you know,
0: segue there. Uh let's back things up and go back to okay, you you uh started practicing firearms law. It became very quickly the thing that was consuming you as far as your time and everything. What are some of the uh what are some of the organizations then that you I mean, you're wearing the shirt
1: right now. So t- okay. talk, talk about that. <laughs> so uh, so some people get a little bit confused with this because it is complex. But uh, basically, I'm involved in two different law firms. So my father's law firm is Prince Law Offices PC. That's where I, I started working as soon as I uh, graduated from law school and developed a lot of my practice there. And then later on, I started my own uh, law firm, civil rights defense firm, PC, uh, really, honestly, the only reason that I did that, because my family's all very close, and I had no problem continuing working at my father's firm, and I still, to this day, do still work for principal offices, PC as well, uh, but we did it mostly for estate planning purposes and that, and uh, as my father's getting older, and hope to God, he's with me many, 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 many more years, but we all know that sometimes we don't have much control on those things, so we were just doing some estate planning, and that's when I opened Civil Rights Defense Firm, PC, uh, and then we have a division, we actually have two divisions there, but the main division that I'm involved with is Firearms Industry Consulting Group, uh, and we handle all firearms law related matters there. Uh, I can touch a little bit more on what that is. And the other division, because I know you're laughing, uh, is Cannabis Industry Law Group. Yes, there you go. CILG. That, that, that's actually
0: not, that, that's good. I, I, had, I, had I been thinking of that, I would have been laughing about that too. But no, what I was laughing about was, I forget what what the deal was. Um but there was a hearing in, in Harrisburg, and you and Adam Kraut uh were down, and you were, were were testifying and I went in you know to sit in and i the only other people there were like uh what is it mad or who's the uh, um the organization the mothers or, or oh, uh, uh mom or i, I don 't know mom's it's, demand action yes, here. yes, so i 'm sitting with a bunch of them and because they're the only people to sit with, and they're anyways it was just entertaining. Uh, with with your title. And what's the name of your uh, group again? Firearms, firearms? Industry Consulting yes. Group. And I forget who the rep was, but was like trying to stump you guys and said, said something like, well, you're you're in the industry because your name is in the industry and you're only there for the money and you don't care about, you know, actual rights. You're just there to, to make all this money from the firearms industry. And it's just how ridiculous. Anyways, I was just thinking that how ridiculous of, an, of a statement she was making while all these women surrounding me were all like yeah yeah cheering her on and, and making a ruckus anyways that was yeah. a funny day I, I do you remember that or i
1: i, I yeah and yeah. i i've been fortunate i've had opportunities to testify a number of times before the general some both the house and the senate yeah. um as, uh, on all different related issues you know everything from. The lawfulness of marijuana usage and effect on Second Amendment rights, to red flag laws, the mm-hmm, unconstitutionality mm-hmm. of those, to uh, mental health issues, and what we really should be doing to try and uh, help individuals, not stigmatize them, and, and try and help them not be concerned about that, taking action.
0: That might have been uh, red flag laws. It might have been when I was there when you when you're testifying. So, anyways, I was. That's why I was laughing. I was just thinking of those of, of those people who were surrounding me when. When you were testifying, um, okay. So back to what you're saying. You had these these two.
1: Yeah. Uh, so and the other one I we don't do a lot with is cannabis industry law group. Um, I had uh, developed that really when Pennsylvania was moving towards allowing medical marijuana and mm-hmm. that. And I I am very fortunate in the sense that I see things very differently than most people. Now, some they'd say, oh my God, what's he, where's he going here with this? I. I It's funny with with Adam, Adam, we're we're mentioning Adam Kraut, Uh, he used to work for me and I I taught him and he used to always tell me, he says, the way I always refer to you or, or how I conceptualize how you teach someone to think is coloring outside the lines. That. You know, to everyone else, they're coloring outside the lines and they're saying, What are you doing? What are you doing? You're, you're outside the line. You're not, you know, you're nowhere near where you need to be. Uh-huh. And by the time you finish and you see the whole picture, you're beyond everything and you're not outside the lines. Mm-hmm. And you've brought it all within. Um, and it, it's very true. I, I have a way at looking at things. And, and honestly, you know, I'm just thinking of it right here. It really starts out with the story I told you in the Hill School with oh, looking absolutely. at the arcade and. Yes. You know, I just have a way to look at things in a little bit of a different way in which most people would. And that has given me so many opportunities and uh, ability to to help others uh, based on that. So, uh, you know, there, there are things that I think of in relation to the cannabis industry, ways to uh, protect members of it. Uh, it's some of the things we do with the firearms industry. So for example, my assistant at Howard spent 36 years with ATF. And then as I like to say, he saw the light. He came over <laughs> to do the, the good work. Uh, but but he has that experience in with ATF so he knows what to, yeah. to look for in that. But additionally, what we use him for for our federal firearms licensees is doing mock compliance inspections. So federal firearms licensee, your gun dealers, undergo compliance inspections by ATF where they come in and check their records. So if they were to hire Howard, let's say, as an example, off the street, comes in, finds errors, if ATF finds out about that, they can subpoena him and force him to testify to all of his errors where the, the federal firearms licensee had. Mm-hmm. Whereas if Howard is an employee of mine and we send him out through the law firm, all of his findings are protected by attorney-client privilege work product and don't and wouldn't be disclosable so it's things like that that we can also do for the cannabis industry where if you have people who are familiar with it you can use those consultants through a law firm and Uh protect findings so that it's non-disclosable to governmental agencies and things of that nature so uh, again it's my ability to kind of see things a little bit differently that help but Quite honestly, my my main focus is on the firearms industry consulting group. I am chief counsel there, and um, you know we truly handle pretty much anything involving a firearm. The only aspect of firearms law we don't handle are patents because I don't have an attorney uh, license. You have to take a separate bar to be a patent attorney, and beyond that, you need to either have majored in biology. Or in uh, engineering hmm. to be able to go and take the patent bar. So okay, so it, it's a very limited bar. Let me say so. But beyond that, uh, anything involving a firearm we handle. So with individuals, a lot of times it's erroneous denials by either the Pennsylvania State Police or FBI uh, through the NICS system. Um, it can also be doing specialized state planning forum, dealing with unique firearms. Maybe they have National Firearms Act weapons, those machine gun silencers, short barrel rifle, short barrel shotguns, the fun toys. Um, it can be a, a whole slew of, of different issues that individuals may come upon. Uh, so and then also turn to gun clubs, gun ranges. Uh, we do specialized bylaws for them that d- deal with unique issues to being. Uh, a gun club, gun range that ranges never even think about. Uh, We also handle what we call escapement issues, so God forbid a projectile leaves the property, that's an escapement issue. Uh, We also do a lot of waivers for our gun clubs in that. Uh, So when you take a lodestone class and you fill out
0: our waiver, that booklet of a waiver, (laughs) you can thank Joshua for that.
1: You're welcome, it's not longer. Uh, No, it should be. I I think we're going to add a couple more things to it. Okay. Uh, (laughs) But uh, beyond that, we also then represent uh, federal firearms licensees, so your gun dealers and all that. And as I was kind of alluded to earlier, it it can be very broad. They could have contractual issues with regards to um, their vendors or that. It could be an issue with ATF compliance or that. Um, it's quite amazing. When you practice firearms law, you actually end up getting pulled into every area of the law that exists. So I've been brought in as co-counsel in a custody dispute because one parent was contending that the other parent should not have any custodial time merely because the other parent owned firearms, not because they ever misused them or anything of that nature. Just simply because they have them. Just simply because they have them. Um, And Some are surprised to learn there are special provisions of the bankruptcy code relative to specific firearms, National Firearms Act weapons. Um, It's amazing. I've done, I'm on my fourth class action lawsuit. Uh, That's involving the disclosure of license to carry firearms applicant information. So here in Pennsylvania, uh, what we call our licenses to carry firearms, which is our concealed carry permits, all of that information is confidential not subject to disclosure it's a felony of the third degree to disclose it there's also civil penalties associated with disclosing it so i've sued philadelphia twice monroe county once and i have a pending one against uh... franklin county for disclosing license to carry firearms applicant information so like i said it's so broad and then i didn't even touch on uh... the mental health aspects in that that we you know help individuals who may end up becoming prohibited persons uh... with getting mental health relief uh... or if they're convicted if they're prohibited let me say because of a conviction we can help them depending on circumstances either obtain expungement or a pardon although uh, quite honestly, here in Pennsylvania, uh, our expungement laws are quite draconian, and there's very limited ability to uh, get an expungement unless you want to wait until you're 70 years of age and haven't committed a crime in the past 10 years, or if you've been dead for three years. <laughs> Literally, that's what Pennsylvania <laughs> law provides, uh, because we all know everyone's worried about the family name. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we I've been very, very fortunate in my career in handling pardons and Pardons are very viable here in the Commonwealth currently, but it always depends on the circumstance and how much time has elapsed since the incident, and whether it was a single isolated youthful indiscretion, things of that nature. Um, but you know, it, it doesn't end there because you know I have plenty of experience in the federal courts too. We've litigated a, mo- a lot of issues of first impression before them, everything from Second Amendment <laughs> now as applied challenges.
0: First impression, there's gonna be some people who have no idea what you mean by that, Uh,
1: explain that. So if you're just joining, I did mention it a little bit before, but basically a a type of issue uh, that the court has never addressed in a written decision prior. Uh, And so uh, they could involve what we call Second Amendment as applied challenges, which is where you're not challenging that the law uh, is unconstitutional in every possible application, but rather saying as it relates to this specific plaintiff, it's unconstitutional. Uh, And I believe I was actually the first attorney to ever uh, successfully litigate a Second Amendment as applied challenge in relation to a mental health commitment and I ended up with actually two uh, successes there. Um, I also litigated two quasi mental health related cases. uh, Here in Pennsylvania, our Mental Health and Procedures Act, the MHPA, uh, has different sections, and that's what we refer to the commitments as. So, so section three hundred two is the initial commitment statute, where you can be held for up to one hundred and twenty hours for evaluation. Uh, you're not provided an attorney. You're not provided an opportunity to cross-examine witnesses, testify on your own behalf, uh, cross cross-examine other individuals. Uh, and in my opinion, you're also not entitled to a neutral arbiter because, unfortunately, in my experience, I've found that there are uh, certain hospitals, unfortunately, that have not met someone who didn't need to be committed because of the financial incentives in committing people. Um, And so I won two other cases where the federal district courts found that a 302 was insufficient for purposes of triggering any type of federal prohibition. They're still prohibited at the state level. We are planning to challenge those later. Um, But uh, what's really frustrating is the US government basically can do whatever the u.s government wants so even though we've won these two federal court challenges uh one in the western district one in the eastern district mm-hmm. and the u.s government elected not to appeal not to challenge those determinations they still contend that a 302 commitment is federally <laughs> prohibiting so you gotta love the u.s government um i wish i was in a position where i could just simply you know ignore prior decisions yeah. relative to me and that um, but nevertheless, it, it is the situation we find ourselves in. But uh, we've handled you know, other federal court challenges um, and other constitutional challenges as well. It's not just, uh, I'm not a one-trick pony, as they could say. <laughs> I, I handle other constitutional issues that piqued my interest. I actually had a really interesting school due process case that piqued my interest here in Pennsylvania. It was another issue of first impression. Basically, uh, an individual was gonna be expelled he was 18 they only gave his parents notice of the expulsion hearing and that didn't give him notice which if he was a junior would have been fine if he was not a a, if a juvenile i should say um But uh, I thought this violated his rights since he was 18 years old. And the Commonwealth Court agreed with me and found an issue of first impression that, yeah, this was violative of his rights. And then uh, thereafter, we filed a uh, federal civil (laughs) rights action against the school district for uh, violating his constitutional rights. And we got a settlement for him uh, for the harm it caused him. Um, But, yeah, so like I said, I I love constitutional issues or or some of my— favorite types of issues to, to address. It's just right now I've been so busy handling mostly Second Amendment, Article I, Section 21 issues uh, that it really does take up m- my entire life. I, I uh, For a number of years, I've g- kind of tongue-in-cheek said I've been married to my work. I, I mean, it wouldn't really be a lie um, because I do live, breathe it. Uh, more recently, I've been very blessed and um, my fiance Jess came into my life, and uh, <laughs> she she has she has uh, been very understanding at the same time she has delicately tried to pull me a little bit away. She knows how much I love what I do, and she she doesn't want that to stop in the least, but yeah. uh, she also knows that i've been at this a, a while now without you know giving myself any time it's always been fight, 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 fight. Uh, and I need a little bit of time to rejuvenate. How,
0: how long have we have we known each other? It's eight years. I think
1: at least eight, at yeah, least, may, maybe a little
0: bit longer. And I know almost that that entirety of that time, you've just been so busy. I felt, uh, you know, every once in a while when we've met for like a lunch or, or for dinner or, or something, and uh, man, we have to plan out like two months in advance just to, <laughs> to work around your schedule, let alone mine. Yeah, you've uh, it's been really cool to. To see those little changes since she's she's coming to your life. You yeah, you're good for her. I wish she was here because then we could really pick on you and oh yeah, and, and make you blush. She's good
1: at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know she keeps me on my toes. What do you? <laughs> That's well, awesome. But no, I, I'm very fortunate in that regard. So and I'm looking forward, to hopefully, to having a family because uh, probably some people have already picked up on family is very important to me. Um, I have a very close family myself, and you know, quite honestly, usually. Uh, at least on the weekend nights, if not someone during the weekdays, we're spending dinners together Mm -hmm. and that. And so I've always wanted a family The I kind of put things on the back burner a little bit because I was like, I need to get my name and reputation established. I need to get my career done. And, you know, there never was just a great time. And, uh, maybe it was just the right person wasn't there, and yeah. Jess came into my life either at the right time or was the right person to pull me away and get my <laughs> attention. And I said, you know what? You're right. I, I I need some time for myself. I really want to have a family and uh, be able to enjoy um, the constitutional rights we have while we have them. With you know s- some children and and you know really try to move our Republic forward in the proper direction and make sure that, you know, we're, we're doing our part. Speaking from experience,
0: um, all the things I've, I've done and accomplished and I've accomplished some pretty cool stuff. There's yeah. Yeah. nothing, nothing more rewarding than, than having children and then watching that, that child actually, uh, and now I, my oldest are 20, 18 year olds. And then my next is 16. And then, then my oldest daughter, who's, who's, uh, 14 and all four of them, watching them now, like make those decisions. start to understand those concepts of freedom and liberty and watching like the will spin when like immediately, Hey, I know that's wrong. And like, but I'm not telling them, letting them work it out. Like, wait a minute, that's, that's not right because of X, Y, and Z. And that's, there's nothing more rewarding than to see that growth and that development that I, I'm doing my part for the next generation. I'm trying to, you know, do the best I can to set an example and educate and not only teach them correct principles, but teach them how to think.
1: Well, you've done a phenomenal job at it, Jared. I mean, I, I've seen your kids multiple occasions. I am absolutely astonished, like, uh, if, if I have any way or ability to bring my children up the same way you have done, uh, I would be extremely blessed. I mean, I, I, I see how well-mannered they are. And I know kids are kids. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're, you're probably thinking, yeah, well, you should have seen them last night at the house. <laughs> you know, hey, what are you saying that now? But uh, honestly, every single time I've seen them in a public setting or even a, a more private setting, they have been such responsible, upbeat, um, just really compassionate and so respectful that it really the respectful aspect just just like beacons from them i mean it, it's a, it's amazing you know anytime if we've been on a range and they've been helping set stuff up or that i mean you don't have to ask twice you, i mean and they're just worker they just go and do uh they don't need to be asked they don't need to be followed up on and uh, uh, that is just uh in my mind it, it's beyond words because that's all uh that's all because of you, and and how oh, you it, and your wife Abby it's, brought it's Abby. up. It's Abby. I will blame her. <laughs> but uh, it, it's truly a testament to uh, your ability to raise children in the right way. And uh, you know, I I would be lying to you if I haven't thought in myself. Do I do I have it? Like I mean, like Jared is like all the way up here. If I can even just come in, uh, you know, down here, I'll be okay with it. But like, oh, wow, it's a it's it's kind of daunting. It sometimes it's
0: like. Ooh, wow. Now, what were you saying earlier about your head so big you can't get through <laughs> the door? You're, you're, you're laying it on thick. No, th- thank you. Th- thank you for, for saying that. You know, now that we're talking about uh, families, now's a good time for you to uh, relate that, that experience with your father and what your father did and why I said he, he's one of my heroes uh, at, uh, the, at the convention. Okay. I think this is
1: a great place for it. So, yeah, this was the, uh, the NRA convention. Uh, before we had COVID and all mm-hmm. that bullshittery, as I'll call it, it was, was 2018, that I think. 18 or 19? 18. 18. Okay. I think it was 18. Um, it was the the last real NRA convention before all hell broke loose. Um, and it was at that convention that all hell broke loose. And that was the membership meeting uh, where the uh, NRA board didn't want to have to address to the members all of the financial irresponsibility and other ongoings that had been occurring behind the scenes without disclosing it to the membership really and basically many of the board members just being yes men uh, and rubber stamping things i think some of them uh, may have been looking out for their own benefits and, and that's why they were yes men i think others may be concerned about where some skeletons are buried and whether other board members know about that and might use that Uh, to strong-arm them into votes, but none of that is really my problem because uh, our problem is ensuring that the NRA is here and is protected and that those uh, board members are honoring their fiduciary duties to the board, uh, and we don't believe they were. So the uh, board was actually prepared to try and adjourn. Uh, And it kind of caught everyone off guard because there had been these proposals to hear from the membership about their concerns. And my father quick ran up to the, the podium, not really, not having anything prepared, not knowing what he was uh, really, really doing. I mean, he's obviously a lawyer. It's been a little while since he's looked at Robert's rules and, <laughs> and that, but he figured, you know, what the hell, just get up here and just start screaming at them because of course they had the microphones turned off too. So they didn't want to hear from anyone. Um, so uh he made objections that there had to be a floor vote by the member of whether to adjourn, and that there were these issues over the financial irresponsibility of the board and allegations related thereto, and that you know there was even this uh specific request already had been submitted and uh Uh, it caught the board members off guard, too. They were trying to, the board council was trying to just push Uh this away so that it wouldn't be heard of, and then it would be gone before anyone knew what to say. Uh, so, uh, at that point, I actually ran up, too, and I started in, my dad uh-huh. had kind of stepped down, and uh, I, I had more of the spe- specific issues. My dad didn't really know that. He just knew we needed to keep this meeting alive, and yes. we couldn't let it, it die. So he's
0: the one who, he, he was, what, that little Dutch girl who ran up and, and, y- yeah. and stuck the front. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. Quick, before they could stop it and make it all go Good. away. Yeah, he prevented that.
1: Caused yep. the pause uh-huh. and, and give me the opportunity, and I, I started speaking out about it and raising the issues, and. Uh, members in the audience started hearing about this for some for the first time time, others knew about it and were waiting thinking they were going to get an opportunity to be heard and now we're realizing they're trying to prevent us from ever being heard here yes Uh, so it ended up in a a lengthy back and forth debate there were former board members trying to get it shut down um, and uh, as well as the the current board Uh, eventually unfortunately the meeting did adjourn without any real information being disclosed, but that was really the beginning to uh, a lot of what we see now with Wayne, uh, the questions about the impropriety of all the money being spent, uh, how it's being spent, the law firm that they, the uh, um, I'm forgetting the name right off the top of my head, of the law firm, that they're paying over a million dollars a day Uh, and it's a small law firm. Oh yeah. I didn't know it was that much. Oh yeah, it's over a million dollars a day, and um, it's a small law, I think they have like seven paralegals and three lawyers. (laughs) I'm like, how do you bill that much? Like, what's your rate? Like, this is absolutely insane. But it's all part of the cabal. Yeah. Uh, They're related to Wayne and everyone else. And there's everyone getting their pockets padded. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, really concerning. There are some good people in the board that have been trying to fix things. And then, of course, we saw the New York Attorney General step in. And what's, what's interesting is we had actually, my father and I had reached out to NRA before all this and said, we see that there's some rumblings in New York. It's best if you get out of there. We'll actually help you if you guys wanna move, we can move you down to Pennsylvania. We won't charge you a dime for any of our time with getting it moved. Mm-hmm. All we'll do is just do that. You just pay the cost with it. They didn't wanna hear from us. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. It's not gonna, well, things would be drastically different today Uh, if they had moved, because the New York Attorney General would not have any standing to be challenging it. But unfortunately, uh, we didn't know what we were doing, (laughs) per NRA. And so, uh, you know, like I said, we do have some, some board members, though, that are there. We have some people like Frank Tate, who's actually fighting to get on the board, is actually trying to fight for accountability and trying to ask the New York Uh, courts and the New York Attorney General say, listen, we kind of agree with you here about Wayne et al, but you can't go after the organization for the malfeasance of Wayne et al. Go after Mm -hmm. them, you'll Mm -hmm. have our blessing. In fact, I understand there might be a witness or two who's (laughs) willing to testify against Wayne et al in exchange for them letting the NRA formally go and let us restructure, let us put a board in who actually answers to the members and who will actually do what our fiduciary obligations are. Yeah. And so that sounds very promising, but I got to be honest with the New York Attorney General, um, she has very high aspirations and she's very very liberal. Uh, she, the crown jewel to anything oh, that yeah. she could do would be disbanding the NRA. Yeah. So oh, yeah. I I can't re- I, I couldn't
0: think of a higher feather in someone's cap in, in that world, you know, the- Right progressive liberal than than that
1: so that's why i say i'm not sure if it will be successful i i can't you know i hope it will be maybe something will come of it but um you know it's really sad because it's been they did it to themselves yeah and you know with no concern about the members or anything like that and you know the NRA's done a lot of good work and um you know it's it's sad in many regards, because we also know that the NRA has the most clout down in D.C. when issues come about, and that, and to lose that would be monumental. Now, there are a number of organizations trying to step in to some degree to fill the void, but that's the type of void that I don't know that you can fill in any and that, near future.
0: And, and that's, from, from my perspective and what I know or what little I know, that's the biggest travesty. Is because the NRA, they are positioned, they can be, and they have traditionally been that, that proponent for, for the Second Amendment, the most effective one. But because they've allowed themselves to be rotten from the inside, now they've lost that. And there are a lot of really good groups, a lot of good organizations. They're just smaller. And so as a
1: consequence... Living in the real world, they're not as effective as what the NRA could be. And and that's right. Now, I will say uh, I I have been wholly blown away by Firearms Policy Coalition. Okay, yeah. Um, Now, name a full disclosure, I've litigated cases on their behalf in that, and I've received funds from them, so I just want to make that clear. But just stepping outside that world and looking at all the different litigation across the United States they're involved in, I can honestly say I don't think NRA in all of its cases ever came close to the amount of cases FPC just currently has pending. Yeah. Um, it's been something to watch. Well, the NRA they they have joined some cases,
0: right? But mm-hmm. but the biggest thing they did was was talking to the politicians and influencing votes. That, that was the, the really big power that they had.
1: Yeah, the, the NRA, uh, part of their nonprofit, did have the Civil Rights Defense Fund, yeah. uh, which would fund certain litigation. There was other cases that they would take head-on as their own internal, some against ATF and stuff like that. But, you know, yes, you're right. And, and again, I, I don't think— uh, we can emphasize enough how important those relationships with what I'll call our congressional critters uh, is, and uh, making sure that more unconstitutional laws don't get passed like red flag laws and stuff like that. And right now, uh, our industry is kind of in the crosshairs. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, between the current presidential administration, the things they're pushing through, the current uh, makeup of ATF, Uh, as well as now, I would not be surprised if we see some more involvement of OSHA uh, and stuff like that. And so, you know, it's a a concern. And and also, I guess, you know, even before that, or beyond that, I should say, uh, Department of Homeland Security, we're going to see issues with regards to imports. We saw that they've now banned Russian ammunition from coming in. Yep. Um, So, you know, there's going to be a lot more to come and uh, it's very concerning. And you know, I, I guess I, I have to go back to someone who I didn't much care for, but he was right when he said elections have consequences. Um, and unfortunately, we seem to forget that all too frequently. Like, yeah. we we have one good election cycle and then everyone goes to bed. Um, and unfortunately, we gotta stay awake for a while now to rectify the ship or write the ship, I guess I should say. Y- yes, we do. Yes, we do.
0: Cool. Well, let's change gears uh, slightly. Um, you just did, we just hosted you to do a it was a, your firearms law seminar. It's roughly four hours and, and that's cutting it short. It, <laughs> it is four hours, but that, that's like, okay, four, we're done. Because if not, that seminar could go on for six, seven hours, easy. Uh, and we'll host you again right now, we don't have a date as of this uh, this podcast, but we'll bring you down again. It's it's phenomenal, uh, and since firearms law is always changing with new regulations, new laws, both state and federal, every time you do it, it it is a little different. And so, if you have attended it before, I totally encourage you to to attend it again. But what I'm leading to is one of the things I was ignorant of before the first uh, seminar that I of yours that I attended, and again, that was probably seven, eight years ago, was how important it is whether you want to carry concealed or not, but how important it is, and if you live in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, you have a concealed carry permit because it
1: protects you in a lot of different ways. Could you elaborate on, on what that does? Sure, absolutely, and I tell everyone who's eligible for a license to carry to go out and get one generally speaking if you're eligible to purchase firearms you'll be eligible to be able to obtain a license to carry with one exception that would be if you've ever been convicted of any offense under the drug and cosmetic act so for example if you uh, were convicted of possession of a minor amount of marijuana uh, ATF-FBI would contend that you're prohibited for a one-year period from the date of that conviction as being an unlawful user of a uh, controlled substance, but beyond that you would not be prohibited. However, in relation to obtaining a license to carry, you would be prohibited for life unless you were able to get an expungement of it or get it pardoned. And Right now we did just implement an expedited pardon process for certain uh, marijuana-related offenses and other drug low-grade offenses. So, if you do find yourself in that situation, there may be a way to get relief. Cosmetic? Cosmetic Act, yeah. Yeah, so there's, yeah, Drug and Cosmetic Act, yeah. Okay. It, 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 so, so it's not just drugs. So, okay, oh, okay. Yeah, so makeup, there, are, there can be other violations that can prevent you from ending up being a, eligible for uh, a license to carry, but usually they're drug-related. So, okay. Uh, yeah, if you're 21... Uh, I strongly suggest you go out and get it. It's uh, Without being quote-unquote insurance, I always tongue-in-cheek say it's the best form of insurance you can get for yourself because it gives you so many exceptions to the law. And the big one is our transportation law. So a lot of people don't realize how draconian our laws are here in the Commonwealth when it comes to transporting firearms. And we actually, right now, just yesterday I was working with Kim Stolfer of Fire Motors Against Crime, on some revisions to it and actually implementing constitutional carry where there's already a bill pending 580 senate bill 585 i believe it is uh that uh needs some further amendments and i think they're going to be considered this upcoming week that i've drafted uh to the bill but would remove our transportation laws because these transportation laws are just not what anyone would ever think so let's give some examples so Under Pennsylvania law, if I don't have a license to carry firearms, I can only go directly to and from very specific locations. So I can go from my home to the federal firearms licensee, AKA gun dealer, and back. From my home to the gun range and back. From my home to the hunting camp and back. From my home to my business and back. Now note, mall is not one of those options. Grocery store is not one of those options. Coffee store is not one of those options. Pretty much 99% of the places we go Uh typically is not one of those options. So, but let's set that aside for right now. Let's say I go to the range, meet my buddy there, put some lead down range, build up an appetite. He says, well, how about we go grab a burger before we go home? And I say, yeah, and neither of us have a license to carry, or at least I don't. And I stop for that burger. Guess what? I just violated the law. And not only did I just violate the law but that's a misdemeanor of the first degree. If I am convicted of it, I will be federally prohibited from ever being able to purchase, possess, utilize firearms and ammunition for the remainder of my life unless I can get relief from it, Uh, which means either expungement, which again, doesn't work until I'm 70, or a pardon. So it's pretty much gonna be a lifelong prohibition. Uh, Like I said, I have had good success with pardons and that, but it's always going to depend on the circumstances. And you're pretty much going to need at least 10 years to elapse from the date of conviction. So um, that's how serious this is. And we actually do have a case pending uh, challenging this uh, under constitutional grounds, uh, because it's just ridiculous. Like, Even if I go and i'm going to the range and i need to use the bathroom and i stop on my way to the range (laughs) i just violated the law law. i I stopped to get a coffee i just picked up my new gun i said you know what oh i gotta stop and show sam my best friend my new toy and i stopped by guess what i just violated the law all just because i don't have that license to carry firearms it just it does not make sense and i know you know probably a lot of listeners yeah okay josh you know like i get you it's technically a violation no one's ever gonna ever hear this and you know, it, it's honestly not true because, unfortunately, we know of enough cases in my office where it's happened. And, um, you know, we have a little bit, I guess, time here, so I can give a, a couple quick more yeah. uh, stories. But um, the first one, I just give you the example from what we already went off of. You know, you stop by the burger joint to grab a burger on your way home, and you're leaving, and you get T-boned. Trunk pops open. Now police are coming because you got an accident. And officer sees in the back of your car, rifle case. Oh, you got guns? Okay. Can I see your license to carry firearms? Oh, I don't have one. Hmm. Good. You're getting prosecuted. Um, so it can happen that easily. Now, I'll give you two uh, actual real life stories that we dealt with. The, the first one is not one that I had direct involvement of, and it happened in Philadelphia. Uh, so you, all the listeners probably already know what the outcome was for that poor Schmell. Uh, But basically, he went to the range, he was practicing his draw at the range, had his holster on his hip. When he left, uh, he left his holster on his hip. uh, Not really thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Firearm and ammunition, separate compartments in the trunk. On his way home, he remembers that earlier that day he had called in his prescription to CVS. And literally, the only difference in going directly home and going to CVS first is making a left into the CVS parking lot that's the deviation that's the sole deviation he has to make so he goes in goes back to the technician gets his script and by all accounts by the time he hits the front door it's something out of a movie all these squad cars come flying up slamming on their brakes cops jumping out where's the gun where's the gun where's the gun he's going what do you mean what what gun what are you talking about where's the gun where's the gun where's the gun he's like i don't know they the the philadelphia pd figures out what happened the technician saw an empty holster on his hip and called him in as a guy with a gun. He never had a gun on him. No dispute by the, the Philly PD that he didn't have a gun on him. So they, he's talking to police. He's violating Josh's rule number one. <laughs> we know he never talked to the police. Uh-huh. Then he decides to violate Josh's rule number two and consent to a search, pops his trunk, and like I said, PPD acknowledges firearms, ammunition, separate compartments. But now they ask him, where's your license to carry and he says, "I don't have a license. I don't have a loaded handgun in the car. I'm not carrying. I don't." Need... Yeah, but you did for to transport that firearm outside of the direct to and from locations. That is so ridiculous. And then the other one had a little bit of a different uh, outcome, but this one's probably going to make people even more upset. So, individuals an EMT known in the community, really great guy, and uh, loads up all of his firearms into his vehicle. It's in Northampton County. Uh, is on his way to the gun club and gets a call from a close family friend. She's a victim of domestic violence. She lives very rurally. She's tried calling the police. Uh, They're 45 minutes out. Uh, She wants to get out of the home. She doesn't have a vehicle, doesn't have a way out. So he goes over to pick her up. She gets in the van. She's telling him what happened. She's like, I just want to get out of here. I want to report this to the police. Well, a, a, a jurisdiction over a local officer decides to respond because he hears that the PSP is 45 minutes out. So this officer knows our guy. We'll just call him Jim. So the officer comes up. Hey, Jim, what's going on? What, what's going on here? And he says, Ah, uh, he says, you know, I got a call. She's a close family friend. She's a victim of domestic violence. She wants to file a report. Uh, but you know, she needed a way out, and I was on my way. I picked him up. Oh, okay. And the officer asked one of my favorite questions. He goes, is there anything in the vehicle I need to know about? Now I'm gonna make a little segue here. Like, I don't know. What this officer thinks he or she needs to know about that's in my vehicle, if this is me being asked this question. Is the fully automatic MP5 that's in the trunk something he or she thinks (laughs) they need to know about? I don't think so. They may think so. This is a recipe for disaster, all right? So that's why I'm like, you never answer this type of question. In fact, you never answer any question, uh, or yeah, any question except with another question. So, anyway. He, of course, knowing the officer, thinks he's fine. Oh, yeah, well, I had my firearms in the back because I was on the way to the range. Oh, that's okay, Jim. Can I see your license to carry? Oh, I don't have a license to carry. I don't have a—I lo- didn't say I had a loaded gun in it. No, no, but you're transporting firearms. You didn't go directly to the range. The officer didn't want to charge. Uh, has to go back, tell his chief, and the chief's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't really think we should charge but you got to check with the DA, DA said, yes, you charge. Uh, And we end up in front of a magisterial district judge at the preliminary hearing. Now, for all the listeners, so you know, this is not actually, as much as we want this to be how the process works, this is not how the process works. Uh, At a preliminary hearing, the only thing the magisterial district judge is supposed to do is consider whether it's likely that an offense occurred. The magisterial district judge is not supposed to consider any defenses that may be available or anything. It's just, is it likely that an uh, offense occurred? And so, um, you know, and quite honestly, there's no argument at this stage that no offense occurred. You know, it's whether there's a defense to it, in yeah. essence. Uh, but we go through and we put everything up, background in it. This magisterial district judge is incensed. He says, this might be technically the way in which the law was written, but this was never the intent of the General Assembly. They never wanted to prosecute an individual like this who goes and tries to be a good Samaritan and protect this young lady and get her out of a bad environment. Now you want to prosecute? You'll never, ever get another warrant in this uh, courthouse again if you ever bring anything as stupid as this. Charges dismissed. Awesome. And so uh, the uh, DA did not refile the charges. They could have mm-hmm. uh, in that situation, but they did not. Um, so the right outcome did result. But like I said, legally speaking, um, it's not supposed to occur in that. We should have had to have gone up to the Court of Common Pleas and yeah. argued our defenses there. But thankfully, I mean, for the client's sake and that, I'm happy with the outcome. Absolutely. I want everyone to understand what the proper process is supposed to be. So doing, let's... Uh... Let's just speculate here. Doing
0: all the right things, firearms are locked and they're separate. Ammunition is, is locked and separate in a different part of the vehicle. Um, you deviate. You get stopped. You don't have a concealed carry permit. And uh, let's say good outcome. Ten years from that time or whatever, you you, you can have your firearms back and, and, and all that kind of get stuff. Get a pardon. Yeah, pardon. Yeah. yeah. So roughly how much, again, you're just speculating – you're throwing a you know a dart up on a dartboard. How much did that person uh, spend on, on those ten years and all of that?
1: Well, uh, probably depends a little bit on, you know, whether they fought the charges, whether they had a public mm-hmm. defender, whether they had private counsel, you know, how far they fought the charges. Did they go up on appeal? I mean, those things I, can, I, can really, I mean. So on, on the least, well, uh, are you on, on the least? And I know, you know. You're, probably, probably around $15,000 between a criminal charging and, and plea okay. out and then also a pardon, going through a pardon process. And Pennsylvania is a shell issue state. So if that individual would. And
0: those of you listening, like, huh? Right now, I don't have a concealed carry permit, so it's a shall issue state. You're going to spend thirty bucks somewhere around 20 there. Twenty bucks. Twenty bucks. Okay, twenty dollars to go ahead, and you're going to get your permit as long as you don't have anything against. If you can legally purchase a firearm, you're going to get that permit.
1: Right, and it's it's well generally, like I said, there's yeah. the exception for drug related offenses, yes. and unlike. Uh, purchasing a firearm uh, well depending on type of firearm you do need to be 21 yes so yes. it's it's treated like a handgun in that regard which i have a lot of uh, issues with constitutionally but that's a, a different issue to address um but yeah um it, it, it it's a no-brainer it's it's you know good for five years it's 20 bucks it's issued by your county sheriff a lot because of covid are now allowing the applications to be submitted electronically online. You still have to go to the courthouse to yes. get your picture and signature done. That's uh, I, I re-upped mine it and that's what I had to do. It's actually through a, like a third party. Right, and and just so if any listeners get confused, by using the third party, you do agree to pay a, a fee. I don't remember if it's $3, or there's a fee associated with yeah. that electronic service that's not county generated, it's that, bet, that you know, the special benefit shall we say of being able <laughs> to utilize the electronic application process you have to pay now if you want to do it in person you can go down to the sheriff's office and it's only the 20 bucks uh so it just depends on what's uh, easiest and best for you there are a lot of sheriffs that will issue uh while you're there um so that was my experience when i lived in lancaster county they would just issue it right there yeah.
0: um and where i live now i had to uh pick it up a person, of course,
1: but I had to, like, set up an appointment. And maybe that might have been COVID, related. Yeah. who yeah. knows, but um, we are working, Fire Mooners Against Crime and I are trying to work on getting uh, the Pennsylvania State Police to allow for digital submission of photos and signatures. Hmm. It really makes no sense. So I actually have my, uh, what's called, wear and carry permit in Maryland, so my concealed carry permit in Maryland, and most are astonished to learn in Maryland you submit your photo electronically and your signature electronically like <laughs> we're behind Maryland like how, how bad is this getting um, yeah um, PA leads the way um, but this really came to the forefront during COVID because yeah. uh, the other thing to be aware of the photos they the PSP should never have allowed any form of integration between our license to carry firearms applicant database and PennDOT but they have and actually for MOPEC, Municipal Police Officer Education Training, the PSP takes the PennDOT driver's license photo and uses it for the MOPEC certifications. So they already have access to those. So part of our argument was, well, hold on. I understand there may be people who don't have driver's licenses or you don't have photos of, but for the super majority of people applying. You could just go and grab that photo from PennDOT, mm-hmm. use that same photo on their license to carry, and not need them to submit another photo. It's a little bit difficult when you have a liberal governor and <laughs> liberal PSP commissioner, and you know things that just make logical sense, and you're making things easier for everyone, yeah. and yet you just get loggerheads. Like so we're working on it hopefully in the near future we'll get that resolved so make it a little bit more streamlined for people but um again that that license to carry it's it's so important and you know at a number of seminars I've had women come up to me and say you know I hear what you're saying about the license to carry I just I really don't know that I'm prepared and ready to carry a firearm on my person right now and I said listen all the more power to you don't Don't let anyone push you into carrying a firearm if you don't feel comfortable with it. you know, Maybe consider getting training, but again, don't feel you have to. But I am gonna give you this tidbit of advice. If, God forbid, a stalker comes into your life, you might be amazed at how quickly you feel comfortable (laughs) carrying a firearm. If you don't have that license already in your pocket, don't worry, the sheriff has up to 45 days to give you that license. And then I'm sure your stalker will wait those 45 days for you to get that license to be able to defend yourself. Absolutely. Um, It's, as our laws are set up, it is such a, it's a no brainer.
0: So any of you out there listening and you live in Pennsylvania, I know we have the reach of this podcast is, I'm amazed. It's getting broader and broader. We're really starting to reach out anyways. But if you live in the Commonwealth, there is no reason for you not to get a permit. Get out and get that permit.
1: Absolutely. All right. And, you know, having just done the the seminar and that, there's there's another issue that I always think is really important because so many people are absolutely astonished to learn. And that is the fact that you can be prohibited due to a nonviolent misdemeanor offense. And most people, when they speak with lawyers or even judge, I mean, time and time again, we get judges who incorrectly advise clients on their rights and say, oh, no, you got to be convicted of a felony, or it's got to be a violent felony, or maybe if we're lucky, at least a violent uh, Uh misdemeanor. But usually uh, that is not the case at all. And people were really surprised to learn that nonviolent misdemeanors can prohibit someone. So I I have an acquaintance
0: who he had that years ago didn't think anything of it. And he finally went in to purchase a firearm and he didn't know until he was denied.
1: Yeah, and and that's the worst case scenario because right now we're seeing around 87% of the individuals who attempt to purchase and are properly denied being prosecuted for making that false statement. And they end up with a felony of the third degree, Uh uh, sworn falsified statement, and then a misdemeanor of the third degree, unsworn falsified statement. So if you have anything in your past, you really do need to know whether or not it's a prohibitor. And so the, the catch-all is under federal law, it says, if you've been convicted of a crime punishable by more than one year. Now, what's important there is it says punishable, not punished, and it's more than one year. So that would seem straightforward, but then federal law in a completely different section goes on to define what constitutes a crime punishable by more than one year and excludes out Any state law offense of a misdemeanor nature that can be punished by two years or less. So, what does all of this mean? So, the easiest way to explain it is that if you are charged with any federal offense or any state law offense of a misdemeanor nature that could have been punished by more than one year in jail, regardless of whether you didn't spend a single night in jail, Mm -hmm. you are prohibited. If, on the other hand, it's a state law offense of a misdemeanor nature, That could have been punished by more than two years in jail. That is prohibiting. So what does that look like? So here in the Commonwealth, generally a second DUI with no property damage, no one harmed, just simply second DUI is usually going to end up with a misdemeanor of the first degree. Uh, So you're going to end up prohibited for life. Uh, because here in Pennsylvania, misdemeanor of the first degree can be punished by up to five years in jail. Mm. Our mid-level misdemeanor, or misdemeanor of the second degree has a max of two years. Since it has a max of two years, unless we start talking about misdemeanor crimes of domestic violence, which is a separate category, it is not prohibiting because it can't be punished by more than two years. So some other ideas as to misdemeanors of the first degree here in the Commonwealth, well, depending on the context if you steal 200 250 dollars from someone like a store Mm -hmm, or that mm -hmm. you're looking at a misdemeanor of the first degree now that's not money you're going to find in the street but it's also not grand larceny to strip someone of a constitutional right over 200 250 that's extremely concerning to me um so you know again i just I, i want everyone who's listening to understand because we talk with so many people who end up becoming prohibited. In fact, during the seminar, we were talking about the one case we had where a young man, 18, goes and rents a party bus for prom, uh, gives a bad check, it was only a little over 250, and uh, ends up having an opportunity to pay it. He blows a off, so they file charges. Then this young man gets put into what we call ARD, Accelerated Rehabilitative Disposition, where as long as he successfully completes the probation, He ends up with a non-conviction. So he doesn't end up prohibited. He'll have to pay the money back. Mm -hmm. Well, he still had an issue with paying the money back. So he fails out of ARD and ends up with a misdemeanor of the first degree uh, (laughs) conviction. And uh, I think it was like 10 years later, he goes to purchase a gun, gets denied. And he's like, why? It's because of this bad check charge from 10 years prior. And... You know, the, the other thing I just want to emphasize, if you do have a, if you yourself, a family member, friend, whatever, has something in their background, please make sure you go to competent counsel. Uh, we have so many instances where individuals go to lawyers who don't have the first clue what they're talking about and give them bad advice. and. The, they they tell them that they're not prohibited when they are. Usually, the the biggest mistake they make is they only look to Pennsylvania law. They never think to look to federal law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had an issue recently in Berks County where uh, individual went to his workers' compensation attorney. Who else? Why not ask him? He's a lawyer, right? And <laughs> right. Uh, lawyer said, "Oh no, you, you you're not prohibited. You 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 know this this offense would not." Well, he then goes to Cabela's, attempts to purchase, gets denied. Next thing he knows, you've got felony charges against him. Yep. Uh, now, in that situation, the attorney owned up to it. They were actually friends too, um, and said and gave us a letter to give to the district attorney, saying, "Yes, I incorrectly now understand advised him uh, that he was not prohibited when he actually is." Uh, And so the district attorney did withdraw the charges, but we also had to tell the individual, you know, you are still prohibited. So regardless of what your attorney told you, you're still prohibited. Uh, We've had judges do it on the stand, judges that have been on the bench for 25 plus years. It's just no one understands it, the complexity and the interplay between state and federal law. And generally speaking, people will become prohibited long before under federal law than they will state law. Um, But there are instances where someone can become prohibited under state law and not under federal law. Uh, So it's just a very, very complex situation. That's in part why the seminar does end up being four hours. I mean, we, we go over a lot of really cool stuff. We go over all the different fun toys and types of firearms we can own here in the Commonwealth. We go over prohibited persons. We go over open and concealed carry. Then we go over use of force. We talk both about our castle doctrine and our stand your ground doctrine. And then we do what I like to call the burger joint example where I actually walk individuals through this one scenario the burger joint of what to be thinking about before they find themselves in that situation it's a use of force situation and um it's amazing to me how few people have ever thought about how they would respond in a particular situation and how important it is for them to have already considered that in advance do you have any scheduled anywhere else in the commonwealth um, I believe on November 20th, I am doing one for State Representative Hershey. It's a two-hour one. It just focuses just strictly on open and concealed carry, and uh, use of force. Um, but that's the only one I think I have coming up this year because once the winter months hit, it, it becomes so hit or miss, it's just too difficult to schedule because the snow's yeah, sleet yeah. of snow, sea, and all that. But that's the only one I, I can think of right off the top of my head that I do have coming okay. up. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time.
0: Um, pleasure, I don't get to see you enough, and we'll definitely have you back on and ask you some uh, some different questions, and we will definitely at least once, if not twice, host you
1: again uh, next year to come and do this seminar. Awesome, um, I look forward to it. I, I love doing this, and I, I'm really enjoying the the podcast and that. <laughs> and the, again, this, this gold mic, I mean, baby, <laughs> baby. Uh, but no, okay. seriously, anytime you want to do it, I, I love you know. Doing this type of stuff and getting the information out because I don't want to see our our people end up being prosecuted for Either bad advice or just not knowing and you know It's just the the laws are of such a nature anymore that it's an impossibility for anyone to know Whether they're you know in compliance with all the laws and that I mean it, it says something to you when the person who wrote the IRS code and it comes up on charges, and his defense for it is, well, I didn't understand that that's what it said. You know, <laughs> if you take that as truth and gospel, uh-huh. that's really scary. And, and you know what? I actually do, because of the sheer volume of yeah. it and all the interrelatedness, it is so quick and so easy to lose track of how everything, you know, meshes together. Yep. And that's scary. If
0: individuals have questions or they want to re- reach out to you, whether just ask questions or services, how, how can they reach you?
1: Sure. You can uh, call the law firm, Civil Rights Defense Firm. Uh, again, that is, there, we do have a division firearms industry consulting group with it. Uh, the phone number is 888-202-9297. Again, that's 888-202-9297. You can also find us online at civilrightsdefensefirm.com as well as firearms Industry. Consulting group.com, um, and you can always uh, email in. My email is Joshua, J O S H U A, at civil defense uh, It probably is easiest if you do call into the office because the staff needs to gather some information, you know, open a file and all of that. So, um, yeah, I hope, you know, if you do have any issues, please don't hesitate to reach out. Again, we handle pretty much anything involving a firearm. Also, I will say, uh, my office has been real busy handling uh, different issues related to COVID litigation, whether it's mass mandates, vaccine mandates, exemptions from them. Uh, I was actually the attorney who sued Governor Wolf over uh, the closure of federal firearms licensees mm-hmm. during COVID uh, and also the closure of law firms. He he had, uh, in his initial declaration... Uh, permitted... well, only essential, right? Yeah, yes. I was not essential, apparently. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so we got those reversed. But uh, uh, yeah, so if you have any issues of that nature, please don't hesitate to reach out. And I will say my father's firm, Prince Law Offices PC, is a general uh, practice firm, so pretty much any type of legal issue that you may have, we do handle there as well. Cool. Uh, For those of you who follow us on Facebook,
0: occasionally we'll share some of the articles or blog posts from from Josh, but at the same time, uh, go visit his site. What's the name? of what's... Uh,
1: The blog is yeah. blog, B-L-O-G dot Prince Law, all one word, P-R-I-N-C-E-L-A-W.com.
0: Cool. Thank you. And there's a lot of good information there and it's regularly updated. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Gab, and you guys, uh, you stay safe. We'll talk to you again next time. Thank you.
1: I move for a bad court thingy. You mean a mistrial? Yeah. That's why you're the judge and I'm the law-talking guy. The lawyer. Right.